Voice Nation. Greetings, fellow box openers and those we open boxes for. Welcome to Device Nation. Nearly 40,000 downloads and not a single recorded instance of leg length discrepancy. We are proud of that. One thing we're particularly proud of today is an opportunity to sit down and talk with the Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and the Fellowship Director of Adult Reconstruction at Wake Forest University, Medical Director of Davy Medical Center, recently named Vice Chair of Quality for Orthopedics, Dog Butler, Kid Wrangler. Yes, it can only be at Joint Doc Shields. Check him out on Twitter, Dr. John Shields. So you're going to want to stick around for that great conversation. My name is Kevin Brown, your fellow traveler on this road called Medical Device. I hope you're having a great day. I know I am. So quick aside before we get going today, I received a PO the other day for a case that had been done the previous week. And lo and behold, last line was $340. Trail magic out of nowhere. I asked around. Nobody had a good answer. Made the trek to purchasing and talked to the agent. I said, look, I really appreciate what you guys are doing here. Totally embrace the concept. He's like, what? I said, the rep tip jar. What better way for hospitals to show the reps their appreciation for what we do day in, day out to make those cases go smooth and provide the best possible outcome, at least within our control, for the patients? Great work, purchasing agent. Thank you for this small token of your esteem. He looked at me like I had three heads. I felt like a stand-up comedian up there going, is this thing on? This is not something that purchasing people find funny at all. Paying us more. (laughs) Now, if you really want to leave somebody better off than how you found them, slipping them $340 is certainly one option. But another option, although it's cheaper, but it's a little bit more challenging, is what we're going to be talking about today. A continuation of our special agent series inspired by former BSU chief of the FBI and friend of Device Nation, Dr. Greg Vecchi, author of the Behavioral Influence Stairway Model, which we are using as a talking point. Good stuff for relationships, and 90% of life is relationships and medical device is no exception. So where are we on the fabled behavioral influence stairway? Well, we're at empathy. And we talked about the fact that empathy doesn't happen in a vacuum. It starts with a question and it's followed by active listening so that you have something to be actually empathetic to, right? Active listening follows you all the way up the stairway. It does not leave once you get past empathy on to rapport and trust. And then finally, at influence and behavior change. So today, we're going to dive into a subject that has certainly made the rounds in many sales publications, active listening. We've touched on it here at Device Nation, hopefully bring you some fresh perspective on it today. And we're going to go a little salesy with the five Ps. Don't get overwhelmed. The first one is going to be purpose, number two, position. And that's all we're going to go over today because we don't want to push your buttons on number three, which is patience. And then lastly, packaging and points of connection. Let's jump right into it. Number one, where's your why? Purpose. Purpose. Why are you listening to the person sitting across the table from you? If you can answer this question correctly, then actively listening to what they're saying is actually pretty easy. But if your why is distorted from the get-go, then that creates a problem. One problem that presents itself acutely in these type of exchanges is listening to reply. I love this quote by Stephen Covey. People don't listen to understand. They listen to Reply. We've all done that, looking for the bullet point in the conversation to launch our next filibuster. And we're really, truly not listening to the person that's talking to us. I pondered this the other day, hilariously, as I was talking to my perfect dog, Daisy, and I realized that I'm going through all these long sentences with her. She doesn't hear any of it, except for these little key phrases that she's kind of dialed into, right? You want to go for a walk? Want a treat? Want to go for a ride? She hears that, but everything else is much like this classic Simpsons episode I remembered from years ago. We never had a family meeting before. We never had a problem with a family member we can give away before. Homer, what are you saying? I'm saying that it's better than it's better than it's better. Come on, boy. Sit. 
Blah, blah. Blah, blah. We're going to have to say goodbye. Because you don't understand a single word I say. You just knew how important it was to learn blah, blah, sit. Wait a minute. You did it. That episode always cracked me up, taking us into the mind of Santa's little helper, the Simpsons dog, blah, blah, sit. And the more I thought about that, I thought, oh my, that's exactly what happens to me when I listen to Reply. Blah, blah, trucks. Blah, blah, guitar amps. Listening for things that I recognize and then conversely I want to talk about. Thus relegating myself to channeling the Simpsons family dog. Not going to do it. So the purpose of listening to other people is not to reply, and the purpose of listening to other people is not to get something from them, right? We talked about the great divorce. We are cutting off the end of the stairway of behavior change and influence. That is not why we do anything that precedes it. Why? It's manipulation, and people pick up on that. It has no place in any relationship, medical device, or otherwise. Well, then you say to yourself, well, why listen to anybody? If there's nothing in it for me, if there's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, well, then why? I loved Reader's Digest growing up. It pays to enrich your word power. Laughter is the best medicine. Well, I believe being listened to is the best medicine. I believe that we all have an innate desire to be heard, to be listened to. And it is so rare to find somebody that's willing to be on the receiving end of that these days, right? People listen to reply if they even listen at all. Moving quick, whole lot of Red Bull going on out there. Look at social media. How much of that is actually listening to anybody, right? It's not a dialogue. It's a monologue. So let's tie this up. Why are we doing it? What's the purpose Well, on the private side, the answer is obvious. Every functional, successful relationship revolves around two people communicating and listening to each other. When it becomes one-sided or non-existent, then trouble is right around the corner. Got to get that one down on the private side. On the public side, if you really believe that your job revolves around helping people then the only way you're going to really be able to help them is to listen to them, not through the lens of your quota or whatever it is you want to sell, but what do they need? And then start to think about what can I do to bring value to this person or this institution? Public, private, it's all the same. Listening with no strings attached and no agenda. Number two, position. And why not use a little Seinfeld today to drive the point home? And why does that pharmacist have to be two and a half feet higher than everybody else? Who the hell is this guy? Clear out, everybody. I'm working with pills up here. I'm taking them from this big bottle, and then I'm going to put them in a little bottle. That's my whole job. I can't be down on the floor with you people. Some time ago, a young rep reached out to me from another town regarding a case that he had never seen before. It was kind of challenging. And my schedule cleared to where I could help him out. Love doing stuff like that. And right before I went into the room, I'd never met the surgeon before. He said, look, no matter what you see coming, don't say a word because the surgeon gets angry if you give him any advice. So I thought, well, that's odd, but I'm here to help you out. So let's just roll with it. Sure enough, halfway through the case, we were punching a ticket for a ride on the struggle bus. What would have been a five-minute workaround on this particular instrument turned into 30 because nobody was allowed to say anything. It was just crazy. And I know a lot of reps have examples of that where customers treated us that way. They were sitting up there like that pharmacist in the Seinfeld bit, right? Two and a half feet above everybody else. How dare you even talk to me? And I have nothing to hear from you. But you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, we can do that easily to other people in our space as well. Let's get a little uncomfortable while we're at it. Can you listen to a rep 10 years your junior? Do they have anything to offer you that might help you? Somebody fresh out of sales school that maybe challenges you and how you could be doing something better. Can you even hear it? I have seen reps talk down to central sterile people. I've seen them talk down to scrub techs. I could go on and on and on. This two and a half foot platform is not reserved for pharmacists. There is no place for a caste system when it comes to our customers or any other relationship for that matter, right? 
We walk into that hospital, we have a platform that is two and a half feet below everyone else, and that keeps you out of trouble, and that keeps you listening. But the moment you pull that box out that elevates you, and you step up on it, just like the step in the OR, right? Can somebody get me a step? The moment you stand on top of that thing, you're going to miss something. Somebody's going to have something to share with you that could actually help you, but you can't hear it. And at the end of the day, the only person that's truly harmed in that exchange is us. So make sure you stay tuned for the next episode as we unpack patience, packaging, and points of connection. Keep these things short and sweet. I don't want it to turn into blah, 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 femoral component, blah, 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 titanium nitride. Don't want that at all. Well, one person I know you're going to really enjoy actively listening to is our next guest, Dr. John Shields. Welcome to the show, sir. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So honored to have you on the program uh, to hear about your work as a Recon Fellowship Director at Baptist, your your comic genius on Twitter. But first, let's go back to Virginia, Old Dominion. What put you on the path to medicine? It is a long tale. I think it's a lot of things that that I sort of put me on the path to medicine. Um, I am, as you can probably tell, on the I am on the call. I, I sort of grew up as a stutterer, um, and you're going through school. Um, I sort of always had this. Um, I had this need to help people. Uh, yeah, I felt like I sort of you know had a little bit of a disability, and um, as you might imagine, you know, grade school was pretty miserable. Um, I stutter. Kids can be mean. And I thought, you know, this is terrible. If I have an opportunity in my life that I could help people, I would love to help people. And that was coupled with this this sort of uh, fascination with sort of, you know, taking things apart, you know, fixing things. My parents always told me that I was going to be an architect or an engineer. And then we moved when I was in the seventh grade and moved next door to, um, I think it was Dr. Gross, he's an orthopedic surgeon. And then about the ninth grade, I, uh, I used to mow his grass. And he was telling me about his job every day. And I was like, that sounds like the coolest job in the world. He's a general orthopedist. And he said, well, if you ever want to come to work for me one day and, and, and I am going to observe some surgeries, you know, anytime you want to come. And I said, I would love to. And so I went to work with him one day. Um, first surgery I ever watched was the ninth grade. And um, he was taking hardware out of an ankle. Um, and I was blown away. Um, Watched the first half of the surgery, and it was amazing. You know, the operating room, as you know, is a magical place. You know, everything is new, all the lights and the sounds and the people and the team, you know, working together. Um, And in the first half of the surgery, I was blown away. On the second half of the surgery, uh, I started having a thought like, gosh, that looks like it hurts. I bet that would really hurt. What if that was my ankle? And the next thing I know, <laughs> and the next thing I know, I wake up in the nurse's lounge, <laughs> like, what happened? And I'd passed out. Um, luckily, um, he, he didn't give me a second chance. Um, and I watched your knee replacement, hip replacements. And I said, this is amazing. And so then, you know, 16, I get a job in the operating room where in my summers and winter breaks in high school and college, uh, I, I, I was mopping floors. I uh, in the same operating room, and I always migrated back into the to I am into the room with orthopedic surgeons. You know, any downtime I had, I am I was watching surgeries, and at that point, I was hooked. And it was I am as orthopedics or bust, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Would love to hear about your parents and your grandparents. I know they were they were pretty amazing people. Yeah. So so I grew up my my dad. I, I he was a farm equipment dealer. Um, as a kid, he was, you know, he was on call, um, for any equipment that, that, that sort of, you know, broke down in the middle of the night. He was on call all the time. He worked, you know, long hours and we lived in, in, uh, high over in Danville, Virginia, which is about an, uh, it's about an hour and a half from, from where I am now, which at the time was, was, uh, I, am uh, sort of a farming community, lots of tobacco. He was on call all the time. So anytime a bulk farm would go down in the middle of the night, you know, uh, he would have to go and, and I, he would fix the bulk barns every night and I'd go out, you know, call with him and he sort of, you know, worked his way you know, up the ranks in the business. And, and I, uh, he became the owner of the business. And actually as of two weeks ago, he's retiring, um, after 35 or so years, I am as the owner of color equipment company, he, he's retiring. 
Um, but my grandfather, um, he actually grew tobacco and then he retired, but he never really wanted to get out of farming. And so he, he had sort of a, you know, sort of a 10 acre garden or so. And so when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 or so, I am, I got sent out to my grand, I am out to my grandparents' house in the summer to, to sort of, I'm in a way, you know, grow up, you know, how my dad grew, grew up on the farm. And so I would help, um, they grew, you know, peas and butter beans. And so I would go out there and I would essentially help out on the farm, you know, pick beans. I am a plow fields and I am, and they actually, I had some bean shellers, which are a little bit of a novelty. I don't think a lot of people have bean shellers and I would run the shellers. And I think the goal was to sort of, you know, teach me a little bit. I um, uh, have a value of hard work, um, which I learned, <laughs> I think. And then I am on the weekends, I would go to my other grandparents who I had a little trailer at at the lake at Smith Mountain Lake, you know, have a little bit of downtime. So I, I'm a little bit of a work hard and play hard in the summertime. It was a valuable experience. I got to spend a lot of time with my grandparents, you know, which I really enjoyed. Unfortunately, my mom had a bean sheller and it was me. <laughs> <She did. laughs> I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Uh, you know, going back, I think the hardest job I ever had in my entire life was working during the summer on a tobacco farm and just priming tobacco. That separates uh, those who want a job and those who really aren't into it, doesn't it? It is hot, hard work. What is interesting, and I would pick beans, you know, all you know, all day long in the fields, and that didn't bother me as much as having to get up and and I spray the corn. You know, getting up at you know five a.m. as a as a kid at the task in itself. Oh, yes, but but you know, having to go out, you know, put a backpack sprayer on and spray that corn you know, in the hot, you know, hot, you know, morning and, and have the bugs, you know, crawl down your back. I, oh, I used to dread it. I used to dread it. But what you gain from that is part, I think, of the reason I went into orthopedics is this, is this sort of, I am, is this appreciation, you know, the instant gratification. It's hard work and a day's work. And then you look back at the end of the day's work and you're like, man, that looks good. You know, look, look at the value of the work that I put in. And look, you, 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 I mean, you stand back and you look at the field or you look at the plants and you're like, that was all worth it. You know, all that hard work, you know, pays off at the end of the day. And it was, I mean, it was worth it. You know, it's the instant gratification that you get at the end of the day. On a completely sideways note, I had a neighbor of mine who was actually an international tobacco buyer. And uh-huh. he said that the tobacco in North Carolina, uh, you know, this was right during the phase when everybody was outsourcing everything. And I asked him about Mexico and some of these other countries. And he said, you know, we're involved in those countries growing tobacco. But he said uh, there's something about North Carolina that produces the best tobacco in the world. And uh, huh. did, That's don't, interesting. don't know what it was. Uh, maybe it was all that sweat. it's very possible yeah very possible um so anyhow you would go on to william and mary my mom went to school there just an absolutely amazing area uh what was your experience like there and and how'd you end up in williamsburg my goal was to go into orthopedics and so i knew how to get into medical school and so you know growing up in virginia um we have lots of great schools and my plan was to go i I ultimately was to go to uva that was my sort of my global plan and then in looking at the schools um we didn't have a lot of money you know growing up so my goal was to go to a school that was in state they gave me sort of the these the best odds of getting into medical school um and my sister actually went to women mary and so it had exposure i knew it was a good school and it was a public school and my sister went there, and so I knew the school. Um, and at that point, it was sort of a no-brainer. I mean, it was not too big. It's not too small. It's a beautiful campus, and the, and the history is hard to beat. The, the only downside is a lot of tourists there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You sort of the bob and weave, you know, dodge all the tourists in the summertime. But, um, but I mean, it was a very good experience. Uh, the, 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 the big problem that I, that I think I missed out on is the um there i uh there are uh, the football team and the sports you know they're, they're it's a little hard to, to 
a little hard to pull for the sports teams. But I've worked with many surgeons over the years that have done their medical school at UVA. Just a beautiful campus. What was your experience like there? I love UVA. I um, it's another beautiful campus. I um, had a great time there. I think of all of the all of the gyms I've ever been into in my life. There, there. Hi, is there aquatic and fitness center? Probably it's the nicest one I've ever set foot in. Had a blast in Charlottesville. If you if you ever go to Charlottesville, all of the you know the vineyards and the wineries around there are just you know, absolutely be- are are I'm absolutely beautiful. Um, I am was a great experience, and then I ended up in a Wake Forest for residency. So then you ended up at New England Baptist. Uh, Doctor Mattingly is a legend up there. Did you get a chance to work with him? Oh yes, yes. It, it was that that of I mean all my training that that was the greatest experience. We the the I uh, all the faculty at at I am uh, a New England Baptist are absolutely incredible. I am um, I could not have asked for a better fellowship. Um, Mattingly was absolutely wonderful. He is to to watch him operate. Um, he he I am as a magician in the operating room. I am obviously all those guys are. We operate five days a week at New England Baptist. By the time it hits, uh, I'm a Friday night. You know, the fellows are pretty exhausted. But uh, I would not trade. Uh, I would not trade anything in the world for that year and that training and working with that group of faculty. It is. I am is absolutely incredible. When you completed there, what said? Hey, let's uh, let's go back to Winston Salem. Kevin trained at Wake Forest for residency. I knew the staff. I knew the faculty. I knew the program. I knew the area. I absolutely love the area. Um, I love the people. Um, I love the program and I knew it, you know, and I, at the time, a lot of my mentors were there and they reached out to me and they asked me if I would come back. And it's hard to say no to that. Um, I knew that I wanted to, to, you know, go into practice where um, I could teach, I could do research. Um, I could do almost exclusively joints and had an interest in doing, I am all the complex joints. I am in the periprosthetics and infections, you know, I, I wanted to do sort of, you know, A to Z. Um, everything I learned in fellowship, you know, put it all together. And I, I wake Forest, you know, sort of hit all the checkboxes for me. And, and my wife, uh, she actually, I am as a clinical pharmacist. And I, at the time, was working as a clinical pharmacist in Winston. I, um, she stayed behind in Winston as I went to Boston in his fellowship. Her parents are actually from Ohio and had moved to Winston. I um, it worked out very well for us to sort of... I just stay in the area. So tell me about your practice now. Our practice is great. I I, I, I won't trade it for anything in the world. We, we've got um, at at our main hospital at Wake Forest is you know, what you would expect in sort of an academic practice. I'm um, it's one room and we do all of our large cases. I am our sick patient and it's where we do our I am our big revisions. I am in our periprosthetic fractures and our complex hip fractures and. I'm all the infections and what you would expect in a large, you know, academic medical center type of practice. And then we have a hospital that has been built. I think we've been operating. I am at a Davie Medical Center now, which is about eight miles from the Wake Forest main campus. We've been operating um, out of the operating rooms at Davie now for about three to four years. Um, And it is more more of like a private practice model. I'm all the faculty get. uh, I miss two rooms. You do. And you do um, high um, you do sixty eight cases or eight cases a day. I high volume as your primaries, your small revisions, quick turnover. It's a dedicated you know joints team that is with you. Uh, I'm all day every day, and they sort of you know know you and know your implants and very efficient model. And your patients go to sort of a, a I'm a clean unit. You know, average length of stay you know is one point two days, and and so we we sort of have a uh, it's the best you know blend of I am of sort of both worlds in a practice. And so I'm myself very lucky to sort of have that sort of, I have that blend of a practice model to sort of, I have a foot in, and I am in sort of both worlds. Let's take a quick moment on those periarticular fractures, doctor. What do you like doing? Uh, DFR, plating, nail, a little bit of everything on these. Uh, what's your workhorse? Depends on the fracture. Um, but most at, in our medical center, most of our sort of, I'm over extra articular eye periprosthetic fractures are going to actually, I'm over to our traumatologist. Right. And what most of those guys are doing now is, is, is actually dual plating is what they're going to. And they've actually published a couple of papers on this. And they, they actually, I'm actually dual plate our periprosthetic fractures. 
and they get them up and they walk them the the very next day. And I think a lot of the big argument for sort of you know going to like a DFR is you you know that you can get them up you know and move them and get them walking. But their argument is you know that's just not the case. You know with dual plating, they get them up and get them moving, and they get them going. And as long as you know as long as you have enough bone to to, to you get some plates on there. They don't hold it back at all, and they do very well if they can get them to heal. Revisions, you like doing them? I do, I do. And and actually, since they periprosthetic hip fractures, um, I know people are going to think I'm nuts to say this, but those are probably one of my favorite cases to do. Which I know sounds crazy, but um, but I'm a love doing them. What's your go-to, your plan A on most of these uh, stem periprosthetics? Plan A on most of these periprosthetic hip fractures, I um is to I am as a cable to fracture back together. And I I, I, I use sort of a as a monoblock revision prosthesis. I uh, I like the redap stem as sort of is my go to now right. um to to is to bypass our fracture. I first I cable the fracture back together and then I bypass, you know, the the uh, fracture fragments. My goal is to is to get as as good of a bony segment piece back together and avoid, you know, doing approximate femur replacement. And I've achieved that because I think that, that, you know, your PFRs, you know, have such a, I, I, uh, has such a high rate of complication, you know, high rate of dislocation. Right. And so I, I, uh, I am, I am, I'm pretty successful in doing that. If you were coming to do a presentation and, you know, doing your top three moves on a hip or a knee revision, what would you throw at us? I think the most important thing that I find um, it's just exposure. Um, the the in the times that I've had a hard time is because I don't have good enough exposure. And so, don't be afraid to make a big incision and see what you're doing. And I don't be in a hurry. Um, I take a lot of time on the front end of the case, clear out as much of the scar tissue as you can, free up as much as you can, because if that um, hip or knee uh, has socked in and is tight. Um, it, the, the whole case is a challenge and the whole case is miserable and you can't see and you're fighting soft tissue and you're fighting bone and it is just, is a miserable case. And so I think yeah. that the, that, that the crux of the case is you take your time on the, uh, on the front end and it saves you lots of time on the back end. And th- then it's, it's, you, you, you just get back to sort of, it's your building blocks of, uh, if you're doing a primary as you go through i'm all your steps you know you look at a i am at a i am at a revision knee and it looks like a bomb has gone off and you're missing bone and everything else but you just go back to the basics and you build your base and you make your tibia and you build it up as much as you need to and you fill in the gaps and and you balance your gaps but it's just just <laughs> don't get overwhelmed by it right. you know tell you know the fellows you know no matter how bad it looks just go back to the basics. I don't get overwhelmed about it. Any tricks, and this is something I have seen more than a few occasions. Uh, the knee is so tight, so scarred down that you can't even get that tibia jacked forward enough to get the tibia plate out that was in there. Yeah. Uh, other than a posterior capsule release, is there anything else you can do to free things up just to uh, again, being able to move that tibia, draw it forward. We've done. Um, um, people tell me I'm nuts. We will extend our peripatellar hemarthrotomy high, much, much further. We will do high quad snip or turn down if we need to. But, but I am. I've actually gone to. I am on my knee revisions. I actually leave the femur on initially, um, and still I've got a piece of metal that I can lever against. I am all place that pickle fork in the back of the knee. And then I will lever against that piece of metal to help to I, I help to sublux that tibia forward and apply some pressure. I am as I do a synovectomy as I peel the scar out of the back of the knee, and I like having that you know have that metal femur there that that I that I can really lean against because if you take the femur off first, you don't have a whole lot to lean against. You know if it's a I uh, if you got some osteoporotic you know bone back there, some osteolytic bone back there, and you try to lean it all into it. I'm just going to blow it apart. I may not be able to get the tray out, you know, with the femur on. I sometimes I can and sometimes I can't, but but I'm at least I'll leave it on to help. I help sort of act as a as a lever arm. And then at the point where I think I've maximized my exposure, I'm going to go and I'll take the femur off and then I'll pop the tray out. Um, but but that served me very well. 
That's a great, great tip. Uh, what do you think about cones versus sleeves? I'm a cone guy. Um, uh, I um, have used sleeves a couple times. Um, I like cones. Um, I'm, I like using the uh, the eye the cones to build to to uh, to fill that that sort of central gap. I like using the uh, the the patients their own cortical rim as a base, and the cone you know sort of acts as an augment right. on that base. Um, and then um, if they need, I wedge augments as you know build up off that you know off that cortical rim and off that base of the cone. I can do that, um, but I I have not um, I've not used a lot of sleeves because I've, I, uh, I've had great success off of the, of the patient's own bone and the cone is sort of an augment to that. When you're looking at the patella and it looks basically like a bomb crater, what are you going to do with that? If it looks like a little Pringle potato chip and there's not anything left, I just let it, I just let it fly usually. Okay. Um, if there's no way that you're going to get, I, I'm anything back, you know, it's so thin, you know, it's, it's like eight or nine, Hi, I'm 89 millimeters. Um, I just sort of let it fly. I saw a journal article about uh, a technique putting a lot of small uh, screws in there. It looked like an antenna array. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, rebar and cement. and Yeah. Uh, I thought this is either genius or crazy. Uh, it is. I, I agree. I had the same thought. It, it, it will either either brilliant or just an absolute catastrophe waiting to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not brave enough to try it. Infection. I had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Bob Booth recently, and, and he said, you know, our infection rate is not going down. And I was just curious if you've had any thoughts on that. What can surgeons be doing, if anything, to, to fight the trend? We made lots and lots, lots of changes uh, back in 2012 and 2013 here. Um, our rate at our institution has gone down, 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 down over the last, you know, six or seven years in 2020, granted, you know, we didn't operate for two months, but, but IMR infection rate on our own cases, it was 0%. You know, it's the first year that we've hit that goal in a long time. Wow. Um, but you know, granted, I can admit probably a lot of that was luck. Um, but, you know, I think it's all the little things, all, you know, all the little thing matters. I think a big part of that is your preoperative optimization. You know, it's you're looking at BMIs, it's looking at uh, hydropreoperative lab work, you know, looking at your uh, high metronemia optimization at your blood management. Um, it's looking at high amateur smokers, you know, do, not operating on people who smoke, looking high amateur hemoglobin A1Cs. Um, it, it is all a lot of the work happens on the on the front end. And that is a lot of work. It's the patients who you're operating on. And then it's, you know, it's all the little things, because I think the one little thing probably isn't a big deal, but those, you know, lots of little things in a row in a case, I, I, I think are cumulative and they add up. I am start having infections. You know, we interchange our gloves after prepping and draping and we change our gloves, you know, prior to putting implants in and we minimize, you know, door openings in our goal is to not have any door openings in a case. Um, just lots of little, little bitty things, you know, the dressing changes, how we close our wounds. Anyway, we're still doing, you know, the, the, uh, this on bombs, you know, on our wounds, or we're not having any saline on the back table that you know, it has been shown to be, to, uh, to be a contaminant. We, and we trade out, you know, our suction tips in the case, which are shown to be a contaminant. Um, it's just lots of little things uh, I think add up to be a big thing. And, and so I, and I could talk about this, you know, for, for a long time, but I think it's just, you know, all those little data points that sort of add up, you know, look, and I know a lot of it, it, it probably is voodoo. Um, but, um, I think, you know, every little detail matters. I remember watching a presentation of how quickly biofilm can form. And that totally blew my mind when I was thinking about the scrub tech with their bloody gloves and, putting the implants together and putting a stem yeah. extension on there. And I thought, wow, that's just not good form because they yeah. could literally be transferring biofilm to the implant right then and there. But I, I, I get all that. That makes sense to me. But you said something that kind of caught my, caught my ear saline on the back table. Walk me through that. So we, we actually did a study 
two, two or three years ago, I um, was published in JOA um, that looked at the had the contamination of the splash basins on the back table. Um, and I cannot think of our numbers off the top of my head, but um, we did use two arms. Um, one arm we put, I actually threw some beta down in splash basins. And the other arm was just high on, it was just your normal saline. And the normal saline arm, in just what, what everybody does, the contamination rate, I want to say, was around 52 or 53%. Um, I'm a bacteria. And your in your splash basins on the back table, and the arm that 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 had the beta dine in it, and your splash basins, it was no contamination. Now, we as joint surgeons know that there's a high, there, there's a high rate of contamination. I think a lot of people, I'm have gone to 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 I throw those basins out, but in in I'm in nursing programs across I'm across the country that 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 still is the training. And I am in SBDs across the country. They want, they don't want, you know, bloody instruments, you know, coming back to SBD because it, it you know, decreases efficiency and everything else. And so I think our scrubs um, are trained to sort of, I have a basin that they are sort of scrubbing off the blood and debris, you know, off the instruments. And if, you know, if your, if your instrumentation, you know, is going in those, I'm in those basins and is going back in the wound in the field, they're, there's a good chance those are contaminated. That's a takeaway right there, doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So when I look at a lot of things that you've done over the years, you're clearly not afraid of technology and new things, uh, whether it's robotics, resurfacing. Uh, where are you now on that front? Uh, let's go to resurfacing. Uh, are you still doing any Birmingham's? No, okay. no, sir. A good friend of mine has bilateral Birmingham's, and they've done great. Uh-huh. Is, is the legal climate kind of shaping people's taste for doing those? I think they're good in the right patient, you know, in the young male. Um, I, I think that they are um, – I personally think that hip resurfacings um, are the victim of their own success. I think that they did really great in young males, and they did great in – I am in young males and in surgeons who – I had the right indications in the good hands to put those in, and those patients did great. And then they sort of have uh, expanded indications, and more and more people were sort of you know putting those in. And then it it got a I, I got a little messy. Um, I I'm, I don't personally do them. Um, I don't want to do them. I don't want to go down that road. I, I am I've revised a lot of them, um, but. I think that I'm in the right hands and the right patient. I think they do do well and they are going to do well, but um, I don't think you should be doing them unless you do a lot of them. I am on a a regular basis. Like, you know, if you're a guy like Dr. Gross, you know, down in South Carolina, who I see you had on your podcast, that's the guy to do it. Uh, When you talk about revising things, the, the things that are showing up, at your facility, what what's the number one, number two reason why you're having to go back in? Um, for knees, I think it's aseptic loosening. Okay, hands down. Um, you know, we we sort of you know get lots of referrals, you know, from all over. Um, knees, I think it's aseptic loosening, and it's and it's missed. You know, it's knee pain. I don't know why it hurts when they come here because you know patients are mad and they're frustrated and they've seen you know the, the, the two or four docs and it's um, aseptic loosening um for hips um you know it's all kinds of things um i we see a lot of hip instability uh hip infections but um knees it's a no-brainer what can surgeons be doing what can reps be thinking about they obviously don't want that patient to end up at baptist for revision is there anything they could be paying super close attention to uh, to tackle that particular subject for knees, I mean, it's your, I mean, it's your cement technique, you know, obviously. The yes, is the most important thing. Priority number one, I am, is your, is your cement technique. So when it comes to cement technique, I've been hearing a lot of different things. So getting that cement on the implant while it's still sticky. Yeah. Uh, you doing any tricks beyond that? I know some people doing compressed air to dry out the bed. Uh, what, what can they be doing beyond the obvious? You know, if we have any... Any I am any bone that is you know hardened. I am sclerotic. We're doing you know drill holes in the hard bone. We um, I am only mix our bone cement. Um, 
at 45 or 60 seconds. Right. Um, and so it is nice and runny. Um, and it goes in your tibial base plate and it goes in your tibia. So that is your bone cement is, 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 I'm um, is meeting bone cement and same on the femoral side. Um, I, uh, since I put the bone cement on the tibia, I am, um, I take a suction tip and I put it against our, I'm our drill hole on the front of the tibia and sucks our bone cement into the bone and, and it pulls it into the bone and gives you a good starting of mantle of bone cement. As you bang your tibia and your femur on, hold, hold that leg out to length and you don't move it until it sets up hard. That's really a good tip, doctor. It reminds me of the weep hole technique that they came up with years ago for the shoulder of, of just being able to apply suction to the vault. It just yeah. pulls the cement in. That's a great idea. And and it it works very well. Our fellows who come here for the first time, if they haven't seen it before, they're, they're, it's always a little bit of a, I, 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 I am of a wow. It's a wow factor as they see that bone cement as it's pulled into the tibia. It's always a little bit of a wow factor for, for those fellows for the first time they see it. You've done a lot of papers uh, on an issue near and dear to my heart, templating. Yeah. Uh, so any tips that you'd like to share when you're looking at an x-ray on the view box with your residents? Um, any tips is just plan, 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 plan. And the further you plan ahead of time on your cases, it's the better off you are and the team is. And if, if you plan a case that um, is complex, have a plan A, have a plan B, have a plan C, have a plan D. Um, and, and, you know, generally, um, this morning I planned out, I am actually planned out all my cases for the month of April and on those cases that were, um, outside of the norm that there were the complex cases. I, uh, you know, picked up the phone and I called my rep and said, Hey, just a heads up, you know, on the 26th, I've got this and this and this. And on the, and this day I've got, you know, I've got this, this, and this, you know, giving people a heads up way ahead of time just to, you know, let people know. Um, cause I think that, you know, the, the beauty of what we do in joints, you know, why I like joints is that we, we have the ability to do lots and lots of planning and, you know, in those complex cases, we can, you know, have the ability to, to, is to talk to our partners and to talk to our friends and to talk to people over social media and get, 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 you know, as, as much in, input, you know, and feedback about those heart cases as you can. I'm going to get the best plan that you can for those patients because, you know, the, in the end, it's all about the patient. But, but it is planning, 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 planning. Because what I like to say is I like to do all my work on the front end. And so in the, in the operating room, it's not a lot of thinking, it's just executing because you've done all your hours or your thinking on the front end. And I shouldn't be be a whole lot of thinking in the operating room. It's just sort of executing that plan. Yeah, there's nothing worse as a rep than being asked at the scrub sink. Did did you bring a hinge for this case? Yeah, 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 exactly. Doctor, one thing I've seen a lot of hospitals go to is these planning conferences uh, the week before. Are you guys doing anything like that? That's what we do. We we have a joints conference um, every Friday morning, and we look at our cases. I'm two weeks out, and we have have got. I've got a pharmacist on the line. We've got our anesthesia team on the line. I've got our case managers and our floor nurses and our clinic nurses and our reps are on the phone. Um, and we, I have our fellows and our residents. It's sort of a teaching conference as well as a planning conference. And we look at every case and we have everything planned out. And, and the pharmacists are looking at their medications and any interactions, any concerns and anesthesia I'm just bringing up concerns that are going to be in the operating room on the floor, and they're looking up any concerns on the discharge plan, and to know that it is as high as seamless as a process as as it can possibly be. One of the things that I see a lot uh, in your work, Dr. Shields, is mentoring. I know you're part of this junior faculty mentoring program, Jump at Baptist, and and you've just uh, really poured your life into a lot of other. Uh, people there in your area. I've heard that word a lot on the show. I'm just curious what that that word means to you. Um, I think that 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 I'm a product um, of the people who have mentored me. Um, I'm a product of my father. I'm a product of my grandfather. I'm a product. You know, I probably went 
into into orthopedics, you know, because of my next door neighbor who sort of, you know, took me under under his wing, you know, helped me get a job in the operating room. When I went to UVA, uh, I'm in medical school. I'm always mentored by by I'm Bobby Chabra, who now is the chairman. I cannot imagine a better mentor. He is a definition of a gentleman. You know, he was the nicest guy that you ever want to work with. And because of him, you know, I thought I was going to go into hand surgery. Um, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> uh, then, then I got into residency and I took hand call and said, no way in the world am I going into hand surgery. Right. Um, but, but then, you know, I paired up with mentors, um, in, in my program in residency, my old partner and mentor, his name is Jason Lang. And they helped me a tremendous amount. People that sort of, you know, take the time to, and they don't even have to help you a lot, but just help you in the times that you need help make all the difference in the world. And they probably don't even know it because that's just, you know, what they do every day and they help people every day. And that just, you know, is what they do. And I bet that people like Bobby Chabra has no idea how much of an impact he had on me in medical school. Um, But because that's just, that just is the person he is. Those, you know, little moments when you need help and they help you. I um, it just has such a huge impact. Tell me about your fellows. Um, I've got great fellows this year. Uh, we have great fellows every year. One is headed to Utah next year. Um, they've got what three or four months left. Um, one's headed down to Arkansas. Um, they, they both are high and very talented surgeons. You know, good head on their shoulders. And they're both going into to sort of sort of a, a a private practice model after they leave here. But but you know, our fellows over the last you know years. Have gone into um, have gone into academics, have gone into sort of you know private den. I am in sort of uh, private academics, you know, sort of model. Have gone into private practice, and they've gone into a little bit of everything, um, and they've all done great. You know, I'm proud of all of our fellows that have left here. They all do great jobs. It's a relationship that's it's almost like uh, they're part of the family, and they're your they're your kids for the rest they, of your life. They are, right? and it's great. What what I uh, you know love is I still get you know, get texts from all of our fellows. And they'll either send me x-rays that they're proud of, they'll send me text messages, you know, complex cases and ask, you know, what would you do with this? You know, how do you handle this? And um, it, it is, they are, when, when you come here, you know, we, we always talk all the time, you know, this is a family. You know, all the joint surgeons here are, are all sort of a family. You know, all of our teams, all of our nurses, all of our staff are all sitting a part of a, of a giant family. And when we bring our fellows in, they become, you know, children of that family and their family for high for life. And to this day, you know, nurses and our CMAs say, you know, hey, how is, you know, how's Kelly doing? How is Steve doing? Um, they, they're, they're always asking about our past fellows, you know, what they're doing. Have I heard from them? I, uh, have they had any more kids? You know, have they moved practices? So, I mean, the, we, we you know, love to keep up with our fellows and we have sort of a have a wall of all of our pictures in the academic offices, and I mean, we we we're we're all very proud of them. You're the co-chair of surgical innovation and oversight at your hospital, and you know we've come a long ways from me as a rep walking into the hospital and say uh, to the OR supervisor, Doctor Shields wants to use this for a case next week, and and them telling me no problem. Uh, any thoughts? advice to reps and surgeons navigating this new world order in terms of uh, bringing new technology in. I think that that the reps have to have to pair up with a surgeon who sort of is your um, I'm is your cheerleader for your project, and they have to bring it to a committee, and they have to say, you know, this is why we need it, and if it's if the cost is net neutral or the cost is is not a huge cost, then if they have a valid reason and they have data to support it, then the argument is good. And it, if you have lots of surgeons that actually want it, I think it'll probably go through. The The challenge is when you've got a surgeon that says, hey, here's this new technology. There is no data. Um, I'm the only guy that wants it. And it's, you know, it's $10,000 a case. I think that is when there is a is a hurdle. Right. I, th- I, I think that's when you need to um, either have it as part of um, I'm as part of a research trial or there needs to be a very strong argument as to why why this new 
new piece of very expensive technology is unique, novel, and is needed. Does me having kids in college count uh, <laughs> towards any rationale in that value <laughs> analysis committee? <laughs> I don't know that it does because I bet everybody in that committee also has kids in college. <laughs> That's true. Well, on to something that is decidedly not nearly as entertaining to most device reps, cost containment. Where are y'all on bringing your spend down? Everybody is looking to lower cost of surgery. You know, currently with you know the Medicare cuts, I'm a reimbursement. We are essentially losing money on every Medicare case. And so I think that is the current um, problem is um, every Medicare patient is essentially as the I am as a money loser for the for the medical system. And so, you know, everybody is, you know, looking at how can we maintain a high level of care, high level of quality, but where can we cut some cost? In the in the overall care, so that it doesn't bankrupt the medical system. And you said Medicare, right? Not Medicaid. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's significant. Yes, it is. Well, Doctor Shields, Twitter is certainly not losing money on every case. I was just curious, what inspired you to stake out some real estate on this platform that's occupied mostly by people just screaming at each other all day? So about so I've been on Twitter since two thousand and twelve. But I really didn't get active on Twitter until about a year and a half ago or so. Um, I just happened to get on, and I saw that people were starting to post in cases about, um, "Hey, I've got this implant. You know, can you idea? You know, can you help me on this case?" And it like it was like a light bulb, and I was like, I did not realize that you could use Twitter in this way, which. I mean, I felt like a dummy, but I was like, oh, this this makes sense. This is great. And so before I got on, you know, I called, you know, like PR people and our legal people. And I was like, can you do this? Like, is this like, you know, is this legit? And so they like walked me through it. And so my first case, um, posted a case because, you know, I had this case that was in a pretty complex. I was pulling a nail and I was doing a hip and, you know, I didn't know the nail and I didn't know exactly how to get it out. I'm in chip route. Um, actually wrote me and like, how in the world would I have ever had access, you know, Chip Rout, um, who was one of the, in the legends of bioorthopedic trauma. Um, and he told me exactly what the nail is and exactly how to get it out. And it worked like a breeze. I mean, the, the case went smooth as silk. At that point, I was like, this is all right. This, this is a, this is a great platform. Um, and so, uh, you know, got involved into it more and more and i connected with you know joint surgeons around the country it is a lot of learning it's a lot of a lot of sharing i've helped a lot of my own patients on the platform there is a has some private you know chats with you know other joint surgeons i'm around the country and we share cases and we share experiences and i mean it helps all of our patients it's a lot of laughs it's a lot of networking with i i'm a lot of colleagues especially over the time of covid you know when there is no AUKUS and there is, you know, I um, has no academy last year to sort of, you know, keep up the sort of, you know, meet and greet. I'm in a virtual way and it's allowed me to get I, uh, I'm involved with AAOS on the social media team and Journal of Arthroplasty on the social media team. And, and so it's, it's had a lot of I have a lot of positive influence. Then I know that it's got a lot of uh, just some negative um, space on 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 I'm on Twitter. Um, as you know, um, and, you know, try to dodge that as best I can. You know, I, I'm a sucker for dog videos and those two videos you put out there about Gabby, <laughs> uh, doing that course and that dog digging a trench for that water. I mean, I just watch it over and over again and, and I'm exhausted when I'm done yeah, watching. Yeah. <laughs> They're great. They're great. That's amazing stuff. You've done a phenomenal job. So if people want to follow you and I, suggest everybody follow you uh what's your uh what's your handle joint doc shields and i would follow me if you like um okay. if you like orthopedics bones and and some dog pictures here and there and <laughs> a little bit of humor and, and just to answer your question that you did put out there on twitter or your your statement rather um for the record i do have the best dog doctor <laughs> 
<laughs> Everybody does. Everybody, Everybody does. does. In your experience, you've dealt with a lot of young surgeons coming along and and young reps, and I'd like to divide that up into two questions. Uh, if I was coming out into practice next month, I had to sit down with you. What kind of advice would you give me? Um, for the young surgeon, I would say, and the first advice is the same advice they give to medical students, the residents, and everybody else. Be nice to everybody. Treat treat everyone well. Treat everybody on the same playing field. Um, because you know, being in total joints is a as a team sport. You know, as you know, everybody is. I am is all playing for the same team. I am. Everybody is there for the patient. Everybody is there to help the patient. Is there to help you? Is there to help each other? You know, people have a bad day here and there, and but it, it is all in all, everybody is there, and, and and they mean well, and they want to do well, and just right. treat everybody well. Be nice and be on time. And and if you can accomplish those two things of being nice and being on time, you are like 90% ahead of the game of a lot of people. And the rest of it is just, you know, planning and being ahead and being good at high image communication. Because in, in every event that I've seen in the hospital where there has been sort of a I'm a breakdown and like a medical error, but turns out like that it has been a it has been a failure of a lack of communication, and so I think that is key and it's critical. Um, I try to that's why I try to plan all my surgeries at least a month of advance. I am having a spreadsheet and I let everybody know all the implants, all the times the cases, and just planning, planning, I'm and. Let everybody know, you know, what's involved in every single case. So good communication. Don't disappear between cases and wag more, yeah. bark less. Be there. Be present. Be present. <laughs> Woody Allen said uh, 90% of success is just showing up. It is. It is. Just, you know, <laughs> be there and be kind to everybody. As far as the reps are concerned, um, what what I, what I really appreciate is when the, the, when the reps, A, they're prepared, um, and they have a um, have got an understanding um, of what you're doing. You know, I'll be doing a complex case, and if the rep, you know, if they don't exactly get it at the end of the case, of like, you know, what, you know, what was your mindset? You know, what were you thinking? When they know all the steps of the case, and they understand, you know, what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve, they know they know better how to plan for cases. And they know, you know what's coming next in the case, because a lot of times the reps are there for you, but they're there for the scrub. And if they know what you're doing, they can help the scrub. If they can help the scrub and keep the scrub ahead, then that scrub helps you and it helps everybody. It helps the patient. Um, and so them them having a good good understanding of the steps of a case um, and being sort of playing more of an active role. You know, being a passive player in the room, you know, playing on the cell phone and just, you know, they're in open boxes. I'm being prepared for cases. And if they're either not sure, you know, asking questions. But also, I think that the burden is also on the surgeon that, you know, you as a surgeon, I am, as you mentioned earlier, can, you know, roll up on the day of surgery and be like, you know, hey, hey, oh, by the way, have you got your hinge there? Hey, have you got augments here? You know, I think you as a surgeon have a little bit of a, have a burden to sort of, plan ahead of time and let the rest know pretty much, you know, what you're doing and what you're thinking and what your plan A, B, and C. But if you let them know, I think their job is to I must have things there, have things available to be prepared on their end too. Well, Dr. Shields, I really appreciate uh, your time today. You're doing some really exciting things over there in my home state, North Carolina. And I appreciate all the work you're doing with your fellows there and forming and shaping these skulls of mush. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show to share your life with us. Yes, I appreciate you having me very much. Wow. If you are in recon, there were some awesome pearls there. And I love what Dr. Shields shared there at the end. If you're just kind and show up on time then you are 90% ahead of the game. Definition of kindness, a type of behavior marked by acts of generosity, consideration, or concern for others without expecting praise or reward. And you know, what a perfect bookend to what we talked about today, because active listening is just that, right? It's a concern for others. It's consideration for them. 
expecting nothing in return. It is truly ironic that as we just focus on those things, behavior change and influence happen even though it was the last thing on our minds. So a huge Device Nation thank you to Dr. Shields for coming on the show and sharing his life. And a huge thank you to y'all for listening. I truly have the best audience of any podcast. Y'all are the best of the best, and I am honored and humbled every week to bring you all content that can help you in what I consider to be the best job in the world, medical device sales. So I hope you all have a great week filled with bulk buys device nation. and a full rep tip jar. 